much of, of hunger and travelling. I don't know if you've lived out of a suitcase. I don't suppose they had suitcases. They kind of packed it up and carried it on their donkey or something. But uh, that unsettled, but 40 years of being unsettled and feeling as if you're going round in circles. About 40 months of that is bad, isn't it? 40 years is, is, is an eternity, isn't it? <laughs> you can identify with that. There's something very unsatisfactory about not being where you know you can be and just going round in circles and longing to be there. But they must have got tired of the dust and tired of the nations that stood in their way. And I suppose if, if it happened more than once, they'd get a bit tired of quail as well. And I, I, I don't know what manna tastes like when you've had it for breakfast every day for 40 years. I suppose it was wonderful stuff. It probably tasted very nice. You know, and whether you like Jordan's tropical crunch, I suppose uh, you know, it, it's nice for the first week, but after 40 years, I suppose your taste buds would be recording a certain familiarity. And, and, and therefore, here we have God's people on the threshold, looking into all that God intended for them if you like, looking into life for the full. And God had promised it extensively that uh, in, in Exodus, when the, 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 the spies went in, that God, God had promised, so I, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, Exodus 3.8, and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you've read the, the story of this, and most of these are very familiar Bible stories, if you had any knowledge of that as a child, even at school if you're as old as me, that the, the picture of them coming back with the grapes on a, on a rod to carry between two, Numbers 13, when they, this is the spies, when they, they went to spy out the land to see what it was like, and then brought reports back. And they all agreed about this. It was the giants that they disagreed about. But it says that when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them, to the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, it does flow with milk and honey. And here is the fruit. Now, this had been a reminder. It had been the carrot in front of their nose for, for so many years. And now they're about to enter. And if I can take it as a parable for our own lives, God has a good life for me. He has a way of living for you and I, a dimension of quality of life, which is like Canaan to me. And rather like Joshua, at times, as I seek to enter into what God has for me, I also feel inadequate, and I need to be strong and to take courage. But let's look first of all at what it was that God had promised. In verse, actually at the end of verse 7, 
particularly in verse 8. But at the end of verse 7, he introduces it with this whole sense that you may be successful wherever you go. And then he goes on talking about what the, the law that Moses is, uh, and, uh, had given, that you may be, that, sorry, then you will be prosperous and successful. Now those are, very, those are two very contemporary words, aren't they? If you think about the world, particularly the West, the, the, most of the people on this earth, this planet that we're spinning on, are, are not concerned with being prosperous and successful. They're, they're concerned about having enough to eat. But in, in the societies that we represent, by and large, the, the whole longing after, after prosperity has become an obsession. Harold Wilson was, not Harold, Harold Macmillan, sorry, wrong one. <coughs> There's a slight difference between the two. Uh, <laughs> in the 50s, you'd never had it so good. And yet, by comparison, the 50s were like the Stone Age, you know, black and white tellies. And, and telephones that you had to do this on, you know, and various other changes that have occurred in the last 40 years. And, uh, and prosperity is the, the, the measure of a government's credibility is in terms of the prosperity that it brings to its people. Not the contentment it brings to the people. Not the, the moral standards it encourages and, and helps the people to, to walk within. Not, not the strength of social structures, not, not the cohesiveness of community, definitely not. Some people even suspect that we don't have that anymore, but prosperity. And whether it's the lottery, or whether it's your Norwich Union shares, it's all about this hankering after prosperity particularly if you didn't have an account with the Norwich Union. But the word that's used here, that you may be prosperous, is slightly different than that. It means to increase, to spread. It carries with it the, the feeling of being hemmed in and breaking out, breaking through, breaking all bounds. Of people that have been confined and limited coming into a broad place where a full life really is possible. And the word successful, what does it convey in your mind? A fat man in a big, big shiny Tonka car driving in the fast lane on his telephone. Yeah, I am a success. Do, you, do, you, do they annoy you? Particularly the, the, the Tonka car variety. Has anybody got one? I was going to say Mercedes. I thought, I can't say that. So I, I thought, nobody's got a Tonka car here. You know, off-road cars that only go off-road on the drive. Don't they, don't they really bug you? Isn't it awful? Oh. I just have places where I'd like to go in an off-road car that are not my drive. Success. Uh, and all the trappings of success that the world encourages to gather round us. And the impression that people will have when they enter your home because of the quality of the furnishings, it's all a token of success. The power that you have over people, the influence, the status that you might enjoy, this is what the world hankers for. 
And here the Lord talks about it's not only being prosperous, but twice says that we will be successful. Do you know what the word here means for successful? It means the ability to act wisely, to be prudent, to act with insight and understanding. Success here is the ability to get it right in life. I fancy that's a little bit more than a Tonka car, don't you? For the Israelites, it was getting into a land and making it a secure place for their children and the generations to come. It was to be established in a land strong and settled with an abundance of provision from harvest, for peace, for security, for a sense of well-being, for a quality that they came to, to, to describe as shalom. Shalom. We translate it peace, but the Hebrew word is a much richer, much more faceted word than that. It's a sense of blessing on every front. Shalom. Secure, settled at one with yourself and your neighbor. So that the, the prosperity that is promised here is more than money and beauty. More than a, a Rolex and a suntan. It's a kind of parody, isn't it? That the picture that is sometimes used of Christian prosperity, I find it quite... I find it amazing. I don't. Can anybody explain to me why prosperity preachers' wives always have such big hairdos? And I'm looking out carefully to make sure that nobody here has got one. It's amazing. Have you, have you noticed? They, they all have hairdos that come out here. I suppose you've got to be a prosperity preacher to afford the hairdresser's charges. I, I don't know. <clears throat> but prosperity is much more than that. There's a, in case you're tempted... To think that, that what God, and I, I once had a, a preacher preach, it was recommended by somebody else, which is always dangerous. And, and really, the core of his message was that God had blessed him with a Mercedes diesel, and if you had faith, you'd have one as well. I never had that faith, I must say. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, there's some words collected by Solomon, but Azur, right at the end of Proverbs, he said, it's very, very, very timely words for us in our culture. He said this, Proverbs 20, 38 and 9, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I will have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Actually, prosperity, in a material sense, on its own, is very dangerous for us. Because we begin to rely on it and focus on it and value it and forget the Lord. That's what he's saying. But the prosperity that's talked about here is a prosperity directly connected with his presence. The reference is there about the Lord being with him in verse 5 and verse 9. It's the difference in life that God makes. 
that there's a brilliant uh, comment found in Isaiah 61 and verse 9. And this is the prophet talking about the reaction of other people to God's people. says this, Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people that God has blessed. I tell you, that is prosperity. It's not your Tonka car. It's the privilege in life of living with God under his blessing. That there are some excellent materials around at the moment about the difference that the blessing of God will make on your life. It's an interesting one. It's not something I've ever preached on. I might do one day soon. But the importance of actually pronouncing blessing on others. And not just when you dedicate your child. It's the blessing of his presence. (laughs) Matthew Henry was the son of a Puritan um, who wrote a commentary on the Bible. And it's quite pithy and, and quite succinct in what it says. This is what Matthew Henry says about Joshua. Though Joshua had not always the same presence of mind that Moses had, yet if he had always, if he'd always had the same presence of God with him, he would do well enough. If Joshua didn't have all the presence of mind that Moses have had, if only he had all the presence of God that Moses had, he'd do well enough. It it really begs the question for us, and I ask it of myself, am I living under God's blessing? Am I conscious, is there evidence in my life of his favour? Can I tell you, there's nothing more important as you live your life, we've only got one, We've only got one life to get right. You will not be reincarnated next time as a film star with pots of money. Right? Or what? Or a caterpillar. (laughs) I never aspired to be a caterpillar. Les Gentry is is longing for the day when he'll burst out in full colour. Is that what it is? (laughs) He's not a moth. That was Mark Best. (laughs) Is there evidence of the blessing of God on my life? Do you know? Let me tell you. And Brian will be able to tell you. When you pastor people, and when you've been around people for a few years, it's evident that on some lives the blessing of God is consistent. On some lives, there seems to be recurring blight, difficulty, strife and aggro. Things just... The the blessing of God runs on well-oiled wheels, as you've heard me say before. Where where somebody isn't living under the blessing of God, the oil seems to have some sand in it. God, please hear me, intends long loves to bless you. I know that that might come across very strange because nobody else has ever wanted to do it. 
But God has a purpose to bless your life. He wants to bless your life. He wants to take you from wandering around in a dry old wilderness, eating little other than manna. And he wants to take you into his purposes for you, which are appropriate, which are rich, and where there's security and blessing. Getting my life into that place of blessing is one of the most important things that I have to do as a human being this side of heaven. When we get to heaven, it'll all be like that, right? So that's the prosperity promised. But what is the way to prosperity? How do we find the good life? Well, here there are three clear steps, unmistakable steps. Three things, three practical choices that I have to make, and they're all concerning what God has spoken to his people. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything that's recorded in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. There is an unmistakable connection between the two. And there are three things, he says. The first thing is that this book of the law shall be in your mouth. <laughs> What's that mean? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. How do I do that? What, what, what's, what, what is this first step? Well, it's this. What God has said, if I'm going to enter the good life, I'm going to have to talk about it. It's going to have to be on my lips. It's going to have to be explained. It's going to have to be preached. We live in a day when what God has said is very, very unfamiliar. And we grow up in an information bombardment where actually the proportion of our understanding that is shaped by what God has said can be very, very small indeed. We think we know the Bible quite well, but actually the proportion of our thinking that's shaped by it can be surprisingly small, and increasingly so in a culture where we've grown up without any real Christian background at all. That's why, as in the verses that I've repeated many times over this, this theme in August, where in Deuteronomy 6, where you are to teach these things to your children. Impress them. Remember that? A great word. Impress them on your children. And talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Now, why is that? Because in the everyday course of life, we need to be talking about what God has said. We need to be explaining it to one another. We need to be gaining as we go through life, not just what Sky Television might have us to think and to say, but in the normal course of life, what is God's perspective on this? Because there's so much rubbish shaping my life, that's going to keep me wandering in the wilderness for another 40 years. But if I can hear, if, I, if what God has said is, is explained to me, 
And I understand it. And I get a clear grasp of it. It's interesting, you see. And if you, if you have your Bible, if you turn over to Joshua 8, Joshua 8 and verse 32 and to 34, we have Joshua's response to this. Let me read it to you. Joshua 8, 32. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens, citizens alike, with their elders and officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and the other half on Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he had given instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. He, he actually got what God has said on his lips and started to communicate it to the people. He started to inform that God's people might have the benefit of a clear grasp of what God has said. You see, how else am I going to succeed as a married man if I don't actually know what God has said about getting marriage to work well. However, because otherwise, I'll go to relate, and they'll give me a thousand answers, or no answers at all. Where, where are the answers to be found? But here, these are the maker's instructions, we're all said and done. How, how else, in the turmoil and confusion in which we're, how do you bring up kids? It's too late, I know. But, they, you know, there used to be Dr. Spock, which was an excellent book to spank your child with. But how do you know? How do you know? Well, we have to go to God's counsel if we're going to know how to enter the good life. How do I know how to build safe relationships? How to live in society? How to construct community? How do I know how to be single and contented? How do I know? How do I know how to live healthily? Handle money rightly? Know what pieces and joys? How do I know? Well, this book of the law must be on my lips. Because all that I need to know is here. It's ignorance of what God has said that is my principal problem. Or the first part of my principal problem. Okay, so the word of God, there needs to be a greater currency of what God has said. We need to talk about it at home. When we're together as friends, if you've read something in your Bible this morning, do give them the benefit of, the, of what just seems so helpful to you. I'll tell you what, let me illustrate. I was reading this morning about the children of Israel setting off out of Egypt in Exodus. And that how God said, I won't take you directly, I'll take you the circuitous route. And, and God just spoke into my heart and says, I don't take you the easy route because I can't teach you anything on the easy route. And if you go on the easy route, it's so easy, it's so easy to come back as well. But if I take you on the circuitous route, the route you don't understand, the frustrating route, the awkward route, the difficult way, the uncertain way, the way which seems to go on forever and ever and ever, and I can do something with you then. 
Now, what did you get out of your Bible this morning? Because it, if, if it was worth God giving it to you, it's worth you sharing it with others. Let the word of God be on your lips. But the second step is that you should meditate on it day and night. I think this is probably where as good evangelicals we come unstuck more than anything. It's possible to have it up here, isn't it? I'm now at the end of my 11th year here. I was nearly young like you was then. I reckon it must be about 400 occasions that I've preached the word of God here. Frightening, isn't it? So if you've been here, you know, the, the old stages, David Bentall, <clears throat> and you've had all 400, except when he was watching Arsenal, in a discipling evening. <laughs> of course you're lost. <clears throat> the problem is not whether you understood what on earth David was on about. You'll have kind of distilled a minimal amount of that. The problem so often is that I don't meditate on it. I don't go away and consider it. You see, what, what I hear from God, I need to reflect on. I need to digest somehow. I need to face it and allow the truth of God almost to, to drop... To, how can you describe it? See, I can know things in theory and it doesn't affect my behavior at all. You see, there's nobody here who doesn't know that, and there are, there are, oh, let's, let's widen the community. There, there are very few people in the community where we live that know that sexual immorality is morally wrong. There are one or two people who, you know, believe in it, have a morality of rabbits, but the, the majority of people have the theory clear. But it, somehow it hasn't been, it hasn't distilled. It hasn't been unpacked. It hasn't been considered. It hasn't really been thought through for where I am. Do you understand? You see, we can hold biblical theory, but not actually allow it to shape our thinking thoroughly. And that's why he says you should meditate on it. What does the Bible say about personal debt? We probably know the theory. But it's, it's always amazing to me how many Christians, even though they know the theory, still get into personal debt. We could say the same about an unequal yoke. We could say the same about the tithe. And there are, are, are in the wider footing. You know, the Bible is very clear on subjects like homosexuality. The principles are very clear on the matters of abortion. The Ten Commandments, if, I don't know how many we can name, is always a good test. You see, and two things came to mind. Let, let's take a let's take it. Let me challenge you first, and then let me illustrate second. What does the Bible say about keeping a day a week for the Lord? That's the theory. But how many of us have seriously Face the scripture head on. Hey, oh, come on, David. 
Tesco, even Bentall's open now. Shame, shame. You know, Sunday's been abolished. Sunday's, ah, oh, it's a rest day, a family day. No, sorry, just a moment. We're not to be shaped in our thinking by what the current culture fashion is. We're to be shaped in our thinking by what God has said, and we're to meditate on it. Our minds have been blank in this country for 20 years in terms of what God has said about the benefits and the responsibilities of keeping a day special for him. Not for families. That may be a great side effect and benefit of it, but what has God said? Now, it may be, when you consider the scripture head on, you'll come to a different conclusion to me. Well, that's fine. But it's the lack of actually personally facing and distilling, meditating on the scripture. What has God said? Now, on a personal level, now I, both my mum and dad are, are still alive, and they're still married, and uh, I'm very grateful for them and for so much that they did. In my teenage years, probably because I was at home, that was a, a difficult, a, a tense time. For a lot of families of that era, Dad had been a major in the war. He got used to kind of sending orders and having people salute. And uh, Mum lost two brothers in the war and uh, was emotionally very, very vulnerable. And therefore the pattern that grew up in the home where I lived was one that I was, because of the strain and the unhappiness and just the general atmosphere, I knew it wasn't what God intended. Good as it was, better than it was, than the majority it would seem in the world in which I was living. But nevertheless, as I faced marriage, when, when Liz eventually said yes, I, I knew at that point that I had a major problem in my life here. Because I'd been, I'd been taught a certain theory of marriage from when I was knee-high, and I'd imbibed it uncritically in terms of reactions and relationships. And I knew that actually those principles didn't work. So which principles did work? And even though I was studying for my finals, I, I read a book on marriage a week. Still got them. Never read them since. <laughs> Shame, shame. I read other ones since. Doesn't your wife give you books to read on marriage? Yeah, she does. They, they read them all. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> but, but the point is this. Hear me, it's important. I, I needed to read and meditate on what God has said so I didn't reproduce in my family the kind of tensions and disunity that had been evident in my parents' family. I had to rethink. I had to let it distill. And if you've come from a home, and we've all come from homes which are unsatisfactory, come on, let's, let's, we're all in the same boat here, but some of us are more aware of it than others. I didn't want my children, although at times I've tried to get Andrew to click his heels and salute me when I told him to wash up, but I, deep down, that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't the ethos I wanted to cultivate. But I had to meditate on what God had said, or else my thinking would be unchanged. You see, we, we can get into the mindset of, well, I know it's true, but... Or it's not really necessary. 
So it's almost as if, in terms of when we know what God has said, the same goes, did God really say? Genesis 3.3, remember? Did, did God really say? So the first thing is to have the word in your mouth. The second is to meditate on it. And the third part is to be careful to do. Be careful to do. If you know that God has said it, be careful to do it. This is where we need to be strong and courageous, isn't it? Isn't it? And when we fail, we need forgiveness. But, but Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves him will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's a, when Moses was giving the same kind of instructions to the people, let, let me read two, Deuteronomy 28, 14. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. And again in Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that their, listen to this, it's a good one. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. What enormous consequences there are on our children and their children's children if we are careful always and for, was it? That they, that they would incline to fear and keep all my commands always. And not fudge it. And not blur it. And not say, well, yeah, I know that that's true, but I'll go a little bit to the left, or I'll go a little bit to the left. That's what he says, isn't it? There in verse 7. Charles Price, who preached for us here a year ago, um, wrote a, a devotional commentary on the book of Joshua, and he said this on, in this context. He said, The specific will of God in any particular situation is never outside the general will for all situations. What that means is this. God in his word, has given clear parameters of what is right. And what is right in your particular situation is always within those parameters. It, there's no exceptions. God does not contradict himself. And you see, for Joshua's first priority, going back to the great challenge that faced him, Joshua's first priority of getting the people into the land, into the place of blessing and God's goodness for them, that the most important thing for Joshua was to do it exactly the way that God had said it. It's true, isn't it? The, the history of Israel is, is a commentary on Joshua 1.8. If you read the rest of the Old Testament... When God's people did it his way, blessing resulted. Didn't it? And then you have all those horrible passages and chapter after chapter of the nasty bad kings who, who, went, who didn't do it God's way and paid the price as a consequence. But the, the message is clear for us, surely. You see, if ever a man, let me put it this way, if ever a man didn't have time to reflect, it was Joshua. Goodness me, Moses is dead. Ah, that means I've got the job, right? If ever a man did not have the time, needed to get on with it, 
You know, needed to accommodate and be flexible. That's, the, that's how our, the world in which we live operates. You can't, God doesn't accommodate and be flexible. Right? It doesn't happen. There's no room for maneuver where God is concerned. He expects us to trust him and do it the way that he says is best for us. Part of being his children, I guess. And the world shouts at the consequences of ignoring what God says. We're living in a nation and in a culture that is morally bankrupt and is in great danger of rapidly destroying itself. But it's very easy, isn't it, as Christians, to be saying, ah, the world out there is wrong. No, no. We have to sort the world out heart by heart. And as as I've talked this morning, maybe there are certain aspects where, yeah, I know that God has said that, but I'm not really living it that way. Can, Can I tell you, God has this wonderful heart to bless you. I believe it. He, it. It is his purpose for your life to be rich in blessing. He wants you to be prosperous and have good success. I hope you're encouraged by that. But the responsibilities that go with that are clear also. And if you're sitting here this morning and... Uh, this is all very new to you. You, you. you thought you were going to the parish church and you walked in the wrong door. Well, be patient with me for a moment. No particular reference. You see, becoming a Christian actually starts this way as well. There are things I must understand, I need to understand about God's perspective on life and myself as a person that there's something wrong with my heart, that God, there's an issue, there's an awkwardness between God and myself. Sin has produced a tension and actually has made me judgment-bound. I need to understand that. And that Jesus came and died on a cross as a substitute for me so that he would take the punishment and I would go free. He would pay my debt, and I would be released from bankruptcy. If that's not something that you've believed hitherto, it's something that's vital to understand, and essential to meditate on, and then take steps to say, Lord Jesus, Yes, there is a problem in my life. Yes, my life is heading morally, personally, in the wrong direction. Yes, I do need to trust you personally. Let's bow our heads. For one or two, that may be the need of the moment. You may know it in theory, but you need to allow the theory to grip you. And then you need to choose to believe and to follow. It may be this morning that it's something else.
where you know your life is not in order. Do this morning. It's first and foremost to say, yes, Lord, I am needy. I have got things wrong. Repentance is so urgently needed in this part of my life at this moment. And I am sorry. And I do turn away from the way I've been living wrongly. And I do trust you to help me to change. You see, when we do that, God will bring us into the good land. Hallelujah. We will move from blight to blessing. We will move from dryness to richness, from poverty to abundance, from struggle to success. Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning that transactions will be done in all of our hearts, that you will deal with us on specific issues so that more and more we might know the blessing and purposes of God abounding in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, and in our relationship. For Jesus' sake. Amen.